We ask that through our time together, uh, you would strengthen our faith toward you and our love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ and lead us to take your word into the world around us, shining your light to all that you place in our paths. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here we are, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And before I forget, the next book that we're diving into, since this is the end of 2 Timothy, is the book of Hebrews. So it's all about coffee. Hebrews, coffee. You guys have not, you guys have not finished your coffee yet, so you can't like appreciate the fullness of that joke. Anyways, I've got the groany dad jokes too. So Hebrews is what's coming next. That's the only joke, at least for the next five minutes, probably. Um, so we, we come to the, the close of this, and if you guys remember last week, one of the big things uh, that closes out chapter three is Paul talking to Timothy about all scripture saying, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so he's, he's telling him this, he's, he's just finished this part of the letter, and we're kind of winding down towards the conclusion, but that all scripture conversation is very important, especially as, as Paul talks about his own situation in the middle of chapter four. And so we're going to kind of move through this and uh, we're going to pause and I've got some fun stuff to talk about along the way uh, that I got to go back and read some things that I hadn't read uh, in, in a, a year or two. So, but he starts out in verse one here, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by appearing and by his appearing in his kingdom. And so this word I charge here, I charge you, he is, he is saying this is something that's really important, Timothy, in the presence of God, the one who's going to come and judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom, he, this is really something that's important. He wants to emphasize to Timothy that what I'm about to say to you, or more accurately, what I'm about to write in my letter, is extremely important. It's something that you need to take to heart and live out. And so, verse 2 here, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. That is the first thing listed, and that is so important. Now remember, this is, this is a pastoral epistle. It's written to Timothy, who's a pastor that, that Paul has, has raised up and is out there in the field working. Preach the word. That is your primary job, Timothy. Preach the word. Um, and so what Lenski wrote about this is, he, he translates it, herald the word, but, but it's preach the word, that gospel proclamation. And he says, it's properly put first, for this is Timothy's greatest work and function. That's the primary thing he's out there for, preach the word. Um, and he goes on to say, be ready in season and out of season. Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, so all of these things are a part of Timothy's task. Um, that preach the word is, is primary. And I love this in season and out of season because I love the idea of the flow of seasons. Um, 
but there's never really a bad time to preach the gospel. And so that means whether, whether it seems right or not, your role, whether you feel like it or not, whether you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or not, be ready to preach the gospel. Be ready to point to Christ and him crucified. And, and that includes some uncomfortable things. Repro- reproof, rebuke. You're going to bring ideas because the idea of the gospel is offensive to people that they're not going to like. And, and parts of the way they're living their lives are not in accordance with God's word. And so it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And he actually continues on into that here in verse 3 as he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's verses 3 and 4 there. Um, and it kind of seems right here, as Paul is, is writing this to Timothy for, for these verses, that he's actually more looking possibly towards a situation in the church coming than kind of the general state of the world around him. This is more something that he, we think maybe he's looking at the state of, of the church. And so that's not new. Is that a problem that we, we struggle with today? It is, right? Um, this, this idea that people not wanting to, to uh, endure sound teaching, the other way that you could translate this word for sound teaching is healthy teaching. So something that's actually good and healthy for you, right? Um, and as I was reading that this week, I thought about, you know, when you're a kid, I know today they make every medicine taste amazing and delicious, but when I was a kid, not all medicines tasted good. You know, there's the old, uh, I think it was Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, healthy teaching, things that are, are helpful and healthy to us sometimes aren't always the best. Tasting, right? They're not, they don't seem all that palatable at first, and then the medicine does its job, and it rids our body of whatever illness it is, and then we go, and we're jumping, we're happy, we're back to our old normal self. As, I mean, as a kid, I remember that, right? It's the little, little tube for whatever that liquid medicine was, and you drink it, and you're like, oh, you said this was supposed to taste like grape? I know. What grapes are you eating, right? Um, but it makes, it, it is, is good, but people aren't going to want to endure that sound teaching. This was a reality in the first century, and it's been a reality in every single century since then, and it is today. Um, we have the, both the blessing and the curse of technology, so we get to kind of experience it in real time from a variety of directions. And so every once in a while we can think it's worse than it's ever been before. It's always been bad. Since sin came into the world, <laughs> this has been a thing. We just get to ride in the front seat now, and instead of just in our community saying, oh my goodness, look what's happening here, we're like, oh, look what's happening here, and there, and there, and there, and all over the place, and it can get a little overwhelming um, for us. But I think it's interesting, this idea of itching ears, um, because especially after he's just told, told Paul about that the man of God may be made complete, and so it's not, it doesn't sound like these people are, 
are trying to wholesale abandon the Word of God. They're just abandoning the parts of it that don't really suit them. Their ears are itchy. They're like, that doesn't really fit with what I think. And so they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So Timothy, they might not listen to you. They might hear the words you're saying and say, nope, I'm good. I'm going to go down the road to this other place because they're saying something that suits me better. Um, Kind of maybe an early version of church shopping, so to speak. And so they're going to raise up these teachers that that do things according um, to themselves and not according to Christ and him crucified. Um, And so they'll turn away from listening to the truth. They'll wander off into myths. Um, And he says to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, I love this because the way that he writes this, as for you, always be sober-minded. Really, it's, it's clear-minded. He's saying, Timothy, this is what you've been doing. Continue to do that. Continue to do that thing. Endure suffering. And that's something that comes back around uh, from the end of verse 2 right there with complete patience and teaching. Endure suffering because it's th- that idea of, of that patience is this long suffering, right? Um, there's going to be hard things. There's going to be hard times, and Paul's going to talk a little bit about that in a few verses here. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill the work that God has called you to in that place, proclaiming the gospel. Um, and this whole opening passage here actually kind of beautifully frames something that happened 1,500 years later. So in 1517, Martin Luther, we all know, posts his 95 theses on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. But a couple years later, um, there's, they have these things called disputations. And so they get together and there's these theses and they talk about them, these, these ideas and beliefs, and they, and they talk about them. Well, in 1520, there's this thing called the Heidelberg Dispute, probably one of the most well-known in our circles. Um, and it's essentially on a, being a theologian of the cross, so to speak, or being a theologian of glory, Right, or a theology of the cross, as it's sometimes uh, referred. Although, I think there's only one theology, and the cross is its own theology, and that's what Luther would say, too. So it's not necessarily a theology of, it's a theologian of the cross or a theologian of glory. And so I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about that, because these first five verses really, I think, frame that. Because what Paul is saying to Timothy is continue to be a theologian of the cross. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. A theologian of the cross looks to the cross of Christ knowing that that is sufficient. A theologian of the cross looks at what God has told us about himself and his word, whether we like it or not, whether we want to deal with it or not, and says, this is here and I've got to wrestle with what that means. And it's hard sometimes because you have to just go and say, this is what God has told us. We don't know anything else. 
he has not told us any more about this thing. And it can be uncomfortable because the world around us wants explanation. They want you to be able to verify the things that you say. And I can say, well, it's in God's word. Our human inclination, though, is to try to justify that. It's to try to explain that and say, well, you see, I mean, he says that here, and, and, and this is why. And so, in the Heidelberg Disputation, one of the theses, it's somewhere in 19 to 24, theses 19 to 24, um, it gets to the point where it says, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. Um, so the theologian of glory then tries to look behind the cross. They try to see the invisible things of God, the things that God hasn't seen or hasn't seen fit to reveal to us. And they try to, to, to name what those things are and define them and bring those into focus through reason and through rationale. Um, and there's a problem with that. If God hasn't revealed it to us, there's no way, shape, form, or fashion that you or I can look past the cross and bring those things into focus. Not, it's not possible. Um, in a way, what you can see a theologian of glory doing is feeling they need to stick up for God. So when that difficult teaching comes up, when that thing that, that culture says, that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't, like, I don't think that's what, I don't think that's it. The theologian of the cross stops and says, like, I'm sorry, and we, and we point to the cross, to the love of God poured out for us there. The theologian of glory tries to explain their way around it. They almost feel like they've got to stick up for God in that situation and say, well, you see, it says this, and this is, this is why, and they try to explain it in ways that Scripture has not told us, and that's a problem. And that's what Paul is pointing to here with Timothy in this, is to say, there are people that are going to come up that are not going to like the whole message, and they're going to find people that are going to be willing to teach around that, teach their own things, and not hold fast to the word of God. But for you, Timothy, preach the word, endure, be long-suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And that as they say, is a long road to hoe. As a long way to go, going up against a lot of people that really wouldn't, wouldn't have a whole lot of love for the things that the gospel says. And I know that that's, that seems crazy to those of us that, have, that understand, that have been called to faith and say, no, there's a, there is beauty in the cross of Christ. In the violence of the cross, we were brought peace with God that's amazing, but for the world, they don't like that. And again, we've talked about it in here before. That's because we want some stake in our salvation. It's hard for me to hand over all of the control that I think I have and say, well, it's entirely in God's hands. As believers, that's beautiful because I know that I don't actually have control and so the more I try to think I have control, the harder I have to work, and the less I realize I have control, and this is a maddening cycle of, of trying and failing and trying and failing, and never knowing if I actually get there. But to the world around us that wants to quantify all of those things, and even sometimes us, if we're being perfectly honest, want to quantify things. 
I don't think there's anyone that can say they've never had the thought, well, you know, I'm pretty bad, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? It's been there. It comes into our minds, and we have to repent and look to the cross of Christ and say, Jesus, you are enough. It is you and nothing else that makes me right with God. And then, and only then, can I step out in joy and live for him and go out and live in a way that he desires for me to live. I mean, notice that, that Paul doesn't tell Timothy just, you know, hear the gospel. Hear the gospel and, and, and just meditate on it. Just hold on to it close. He says, do the work of an evangelist. He's not saying that your work is going to save you or anything like that. He's saying, hold on to the scriptures. Hold on to the truth of what Christ has done for you at the cross and bring that to the masses. And again, as we look at that, Timothy is a pastor. He's serving in this place. That's his vocation as pastor in that place. But that also applies to us as believers. We've been called to faith, right? We've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of our own doing. It's not of works so that nobody can boast. But we are God's workmanship, We always leave off verse 10, and we're here to do those good works that God has created beforehand for us. He's given us tasks to do. He's given each and every one of us something to do, and it's not something to do that has us clamoring up towards God. This is the the two kinds of righteousness uh, theology that we, or a doctrine that we have in the Lutheran church that we teach our confirmands learn this, right? There's this vertical righteousness, this passive righteousness, which is God coming to us, imputing his righteousness on us. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness, made clean. And so there's none of this vertical stuff that we have anything to do with. This is all God. And so when we talk about this being God's workmanship and going out here and doing these things that he's set forth for us to do, or Timothy doing the work of an evangelist, it has nothing to do about this vertical righteousness. It's all about, we say, horizontal righteousness right? That's the, the loving your neighbor part. Um, and sometimes you'll see these signs that say, love is an action. Why, yes, it is. That's biblical. Love is an action. Love is actually a command from God. Love your neighbor. That's, that's a law command that says, this is, as my follower, you should go out and love your neighbor. Not because you're trying to get right with God, but because God has made you right with him and you have this beautiful promise, you have this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you can go and share that in what you do and what you say and how you interact with the world around you. Um, and so, so that's, that's really important for us to remember because sometimes we, we stop where the verses end, I've been saved by grace through faith. This is awesome. It's not of myself. It's not of works. I'm good. And I know I say that a lot, but we have to remember that God has saved us to live as he intended us to live. The realities of, of, of God's law were in existence even before the fall. The difference was there wasn't sin. So all people wanted to do was to love and serve God. The primary the primary thing in Adam and Eve's heart before the fall was to look to God. 
He was it. They, in, a, in a sinless heart, they knew he was enough. And they never looked anywhere else. And so, I know I'm getting a little off topic here, but I love talking about this. You were created to live a certain way, and sin has messed that up. And a really great analogy for this is a fish tank. So you have a fish tank, and I've got a goldfish swimming around a fish tank. He's just clugging around, swimming in the fish tank. Is he free? Or you could even make the analogy a pond. He's swimming around a pond. It's a little green sunfish over here at Forest Park, swimming around a pond, right? I'm throwing my beetle spin out trying to catch him. Is he free in that pond? Nobody wants to commit. No, yes, no. All right. How about this? Oh, man, he is confined. The banks of that pond are all around him. He can't get out of there. He can only be in this one pond right by the muni. He can't go anywhere else. You know, I'm going to take him out of that pond and free him. So I take him out of that pond and I toss him up on the grass. And I'm like, you're free, little buddy, go. And he's flopping around. And he's going, I can't breathe. Is he more free now? No. You see, God created that little green sunfish to be doing laps around that pond at the muni. To be in the water, to be going after little critters in the grass and eating them. That's where he created him to be. So to live fully as a little green sunfish, he needs to be in the bounds of that pond, which means there are boundaries. He can't get outside the shore of that pond, and if he does, you know, it's no good, right? Before long, there's going to be a bird or a raccoon or something that comes along and snatches him up off that grass. Plus, he can't breathe. And it's the same way for us. God created us to live in a certain way. And so his, when we look at his law, we always, we always look at it and we explain, what does this mean? And we, we kind of, we have to look at God's law in a positive way. Yes, the, the law has three uses, a curb, a mirror, and a guide, right? When we look at God's law, though, we can look how we were meant to live the most fully human that we can. And the really neat thing about that is culture around us really wants to know what it means to be fully human. They are searching after that. What does it mean to be fully human? And guess who has the answer? We do in the words of the Bible here. And that's what is getting Paul to write this to Timothy to say, you need to hold fast to this because people are looking for this. They need to hear this. It's going to be uncomfortable. They're not going to like it. Some of them are going to bail. But this is what it means to live fully human. To know your creator, to be completely made right with him because of what he's done for you. And then to see the things that he said in his word as this beautiful tapestry of his story to everything and how I am a part of that, and how that frames the way that I live out my life, as we would say, quorum deo, right? With, with I mean, quorum mundo, sorry. Whew. Nobody called me out on that, right? Quorum deo is the vertical part. So with my fellow man, how do I interact with my fellow man? Um, where are we at? Oh, wow. Are there any questions or comments from that? That's really like, it's just such a, a, a beautiful and amazing part of, uh, of what we believe about God. Uh, and it kind of 
a little snapshot in these five verses. Yeah. Well, doing the work of an evangelist, uh, the evangelist is a word that we kind of gloss over because we're so familiar with it, but its root is the good news. Yeah. So he's being told to do the work of one who brings the good news. He's yes. preaching, and that's what is in our church. We're the Evangelical Lutheran Church. We're a place, a church that brings the good news. Yeah. And I, I think that's important to remember that when we see the word evangelical or evangelist. Yes. Actually, that's a really great point. Thank you, bud. Because in, in that time, too, culturally, this term is, is, is one that they would have been familiar with also as someone riding back from the battle all behind the lines to say, the battle's won. You know, riding back to all these towns along the way, they know that the, the army's fighting up here and there's this battle going on and they're, you know, the farmers are sitting there doing their thing and they're wondering. And then this guy comes running through town and says, the battle is won. And that's, he, was, he would be the evangelist. And so when we think about this, you're right. Timothy is coming through saying, guys, the battle's won. Jesus has completed the work of salvation. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And you're right, we do sometimes gloss over that. Uh, but culturally, that would have had an interesting connotation for them. They would have said, huh, an evangelist. Something that's already been done. Something that's already been completed. Because how beautiful is that? If you're at a town back here and you're a, you know, you're a hay farmer and you're just waiting to hear, they're fighting they're only like 15, 20 miles away, and you're going, I, am I going to have to bail and leave my farm? Are they going to come and burn it? And this guy comes through and says, no, we won. It's good. We're, I mean, talk about the peace and comfort. But we're not just talking about the peace and comfort of not your, your farm not burning. We're talking about the peace and comfort of knowing you've been made right with God for eternity. Thank you, bud. That's good. Anybody else? Going back to the theology of glory, yeah. So is that is does that happen in groups that still accept ongoing divine revelation, and also in terms of um, <clears throat> prosperity theology, those kinds of? I I would I would agree. I mean, it happens in all those groups, and and it even happens in our own circles because our sinful nature wants us to stick up for God. Sometimes we feel like. I need to try to clarify this thing, and we go beyond what Scripture says. And so we have to always be checking ourselves. We have to always be going back to God's Word and pointing to the cross and making sure, if I say this, has God really said this, or am I trying to see behind the cross to the invisible things of God that He hasn't revealed to us? So I think it happens in all kinds of circles, but I think those are some good examples. The prosperity gospel is an example of trying to, I, don't even, I wouldn't even call it seeing the invisible things of God, but trying to make the things of God say what I want them to say. So that might even be further than a theology of glory uh, if we really want to unpack that. Thank you. Because I think a theologian of glory still is trying to understand God, but they're trying to do it on their own rationale. Many times when I hear prosperity gospel preaching what I hear is someone stringing together passages of Scripture to write their own story completely um, instead of trying to understand the things of God's story. Uh, and it's really bad. Yes? 
I think I really appreciate all you have said and I would say well done. But I also wonder if we don't forget that we live in the now and the not yet. Mm -hmm. And theology of glory people believe it's a tit for tat. If I'm good, God will do good. Yes. And why am I having these troubles? They right. forget that Satan is still a part of our life. That's an excellent point. So with the theology of glory, you also, you run into the problem of wondering why God's doing certain things instead of saying, understanding that what he said is, I mean, long-suffering is here. Endure. Just be, like, expect that when you follow Jesus, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be suffering. And that's in the now. In this time where God's kingdom is here, and yet we still wait for his return. Um, and yeah, that's, that can be problematic. We need to, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, fun, a fun term, right? We live in the now, not yet. So with Jesus' incarnation, when he came and took on flesh, that was the inbreaking of God's kingdom with Jesus. And he fully accomplished salvation. He's raised from the dead. He's going ahead to prepare a place for us. And so his kingdom is here, and yet we still wait for his return in glory. And that's that, that not yet. We know that we are sinner saints. I am, I am saved. I am justified. I, my sins are forgiven, but I'm still a poor, miserable sinner. That's why I'm so, so thankful to be able to confess and receive absolution, to come to the Lord's table and receive his true body and blood, receive forgiveness of sins there at the Lord's table. And just rest in the, you know, when things are tough, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but I sure hope you show me someday. <laughs> you know, um, which, which is, as a theologian of the cross, when you're a theologian of the cross, that's what you rest on. When you're a theologian of glory and something bad happens, like you said, then we have to go, okay, why is God doing this thing? There must, I have to understand the purpose in this. Um, and the truth of the matter is, we can't always understand, we don't understand those purposes many times. And it's an exhausting, exhausting search to try to clearly define why those things happen. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I mean, if we really look at what God's word said, we're all bad people, we're only good because of Jesus. <laughs> so there is that, but it's hard for us uh, when we try to chase after those things. But when we let God's word lead the way. When we look to the cross of Christ, we can rest confidently in that, knowing that, yep, this is terrible. I can say it's terrible. I can say this is an awful, no good, very bad day. I don't know what you're doing through it, God, but I trust in your promises. And it's very easy for me to say standing here in front of you guys, having a relatively good day. I mean, I'm on my second cup of coffee. That's a good thing. It's a really hard thing to hold on to in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the, you know, the cancer diagnosis, in the midst of losing uh, you know, a loved one. Those are hard things to hold on to. Um, and so I'm so glad that God holds on to us, but that he's given us one another to hold on to each other, to remind each other of the promises of God in those moments, because sometimes we can't see through the grief to those promises. 
but it's not about what I can see. It's about what I know to be true. And hearing those words spoken to me by my brothers and sisters in Christ when life is just awful is one of the things that he's given us each other for. To be his voice in those places that are very, very dark in our lives, to shine that light of Christ. All right, anybody else? Yes. I wanted to add the verse, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, takes on a whole lot of new meaning. It's that in between getting to heaven that we yeah. fear. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, w- w- that, that to live is Christ, to die is gain is, yeah, the in-between is the hard part, right? Um, yeah. Anybody else? I was focusing on the itching ears, and, I, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's so obvious in our society, things that have been maybe a, an undercurrent in years past that we weren't aware of as Christians yeah. now are so blatant. Mm-hmm. This whole idea of uh, there's an arrogance uh, in our society that people think they know better than God, and, they, and they're even denying God's reality in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and 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 they're very vocal about it. Yeah. And they're angry. There's an angry tone to it. Oh, and yeah. I think this is really really hard for Christians to yeah to deal with. Right. I th- I think so. I, you know. And these are things that have been around, like you said, but they're now it's kind of out in the cultural forefront. And so we see it everywhere. Um, but I want I want to go back to to verse two there, the end of it. And because this is something that as we encounter this, um, patience, complete patience. Um, a lot of times, because the world, I mean, the world gets angry about things. And if we're honest, we get angry about things too. Um, as we interact on these things, it's important for us to be reminded of the things of God, the promises of God, and respond with complete patience. Even in the face of anger, even in the face of the frustration that we, that we have for the way that things are going in the world around us. Um, if you look at, if you look through the scriptures, you, you see that. Um, Speaking the truth, I mean, you speak the truth in those situations, but you do those, that with complete patience. Um, it's not a time to let anger drive the conversation. Because I don't know about you, but I've never had an angry conversation that was very effective. In fact, almost every time that if I'm angry and entering into a conversation, then I need to go back and repent and ask forgiveness um, of that. Because even if, even if I was right, and this has been true, this is my confession to you, on my parenting journey. Um, there's been times where you're just so frustrated with the kids and you're like, Bruh! and you, you parent a little bit out of anger and you, you don't speak kindly or with peace to those kids. And you do have to be stern and the law has to be administered, but you don't have to do that <laughs> in anger. And then some, there's been times where then I have to go back to, to Johnny or Noah and say, I'm really sorry, I need to ask your forgiveness for the way I approached that. 
and we have good reconciliation. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, right? Even if I was still right, even if, even if I was bringing the law, the right law to that situation, if I bring it in anger and not out of love, that's not what God wants from me. That's not what his desire is for my life. And so there have been those times, you can ask them, they'll be honest with you. That's not perfect. That I've even had to do that, whether it's, it's in my marriage relationship or with my kids, to say, I did not with complete patience, come to that situation. Um, and so as we, as we recognize this going on in the world around us, sometimes it gets us in a fervor, right? We see it on the news, and, and it's on this loop, and you're like, I, don't, I stopped watching the news, I read it, because I can a little more selectively see how, how I'm exposed to it. But on the newsreel, they go on this loop, and it keeps hitting our head, and our head, and, our, and it just seeps in, and, and by the time we're like shaking and going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. But pray, go to the promises of God, and when you engage in that, do it with complete patience. Um, again, speaking the truth, not, not negotiating away the truth of what God has said, but bringing that truth, speaking that truth in love. Very good. Anybody else? No hands. We're going to move forward. All right. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul says, he, Paul's pointing again to his death here. He knows that it's coming. Um, he's already had, like he's already been seen in court. Um, he actually thought that he was going to be dead already, but he's not. And so this idea of a drink offering, this is something that would be common whether it was in um, Hebrew law. So the, the, the Israelite law in Numbers 15 talks about this drink offering. Um, it was something uh, that for, and I can't remember the specifics, for the, for the Israelites, I believe the, the drink offering was poured out adjacent to the sacrifice, but for the pagans, they poured the drink offering on the sacrifice, I believe is the way it went. Um, but this is something that he's, I mean, he's looking at this, he's using this sacrificial language saying, my death is coming, my, the, the martyrdom is coming, and he's saying, I've kept the faith. Um, and this is, this is not about the amount of Paul's faith. This is not a quantifying statement. This is, I have kept my eyes fixed on Christ and him crucified. And so there's laid up for me this crown of righteousness. And when he talks about this crown of righteousness, this is not a crown of royalty. So this would have been, the word that's used here would have been something that they would have recognized as like a victor's crown. So they're competing in competitions and the one that wins gets this crown. Well, not a crown of righteousness, but the same word for crown is used here. Um, And so he's looking forward to this, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so this is not This is not a a statement of him possessing and owning that crown, but it being given to him by God along with all of the others that go in the faith, that fall asleep in the faith. 
Um, and it's just kind of a, a, a picture of where Paul's at as this, because we're very close to the end of this letter, um, and he knows that his departure is very, very close. Uh, and so he continues on. Do your best to come to me soon. Um, Again, knowing that his time is near. Come to me soon. For, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So some of the things that he's talking about, I don't, you know, I would not have wanted to be one that got, you know, a call out in one of Paul's letters like this. So, so Demas, uh, I believe he was referred to in Colossians, I want to say. Um, but now he has deserted Paul. He's gone to Thessalonica. Um, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know what their going entails. Um, and then he says, Luke alone is with me. And that, na- that name should ring a bell for us, right? The gospel, the gospel account of Luke. This is Luke that's there with him. We know that Luke was also a physician. Uh, Paul had suffered extensively. Um, he had been stoned. He'd been beaten. All kinds of things across his ministry throughout those missionary journeys. And so, I mean, needing a physician probably does. So Luke's there with him. Um, and, you know, who knows? Luke could even be penning this as Paul dictates it. We don't know that. But this is Luke, the gospel, the, the, the gospel writer. Um, and he follows it up with, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Uh, and this is really a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Because if you remember earlier in Paul's ministry, him, him and Mark didn't really see eye to eye. They parted company on one of his missionary journeys. And so to, to see this, to say, to see Paul saying at the end of his life, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me shows, and specifically for ministry, shows the reconciliation that has taken place. That even though there was this falling out, even though they had parted ways, even though uh, it had not gone well earlier, reconciliation has taken place, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark, right? Yeah. Um, Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, I really love that because that's just one of those little personal details. You know, win- winter is coming. It's probably, it's probably a thicker material cloak that you don't want to just walk around with as you're going on in summer. So he's left it somewhere, um, or at, at uh, Troas, right? And so it's just this little personal detail of where Paul's at. It's going to get cold. I want to be warm. <laughs> Can you bring my cloak with you? Um, I don't know. It just, it makes me smile to get those little details uh, right there right? Uh, of, of Paul's situation. Um, and then we go to this next part. And also the books and above all, the parchments. Um, and so this right here, possibly we're looking at, could have been the Septuagint, that, that Greek translation of of the Old Testament. And Paul might have been looking to this. He might have been needing this for his upcoming trial to show that what he was teaching uh, was actually from the Hebrew Scriptures because that was legal. 
Christianity was under persecution uh, at this time. You know, we're at a point in history where Nero has already blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. Um, so the Christians are not a super popular sect of people uh, politically. And so this, this could be, as he's talking about these books and above all the parchments, copies of the Septuagint, potentially, that he would be looking for uh, use in his trial. Um, Alexander the coppersmith, another one that gets a super negative shout out for, from Paul, um, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Um, and so we really don't know a whole lot about this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, only that, that with, with what Paul has, de- has uh, devoted to him in this letter, that he has been a problem for Paul and that he knows that the potential for him to have a lasting impact beyond him is there. And so he tells even Timothy, watch out for him. Don't, don't mix with this guy. He's bad news. Um, and so moving forward, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And so in a, in a Roman trial, so he's, he's appealed to Caesar, so he's in Rome and he's on trial. Um, this is not talking about the general people that he was hanging out with. Um, in, in a Roman trial, I'm trying to, I have to pull up the name here. Um, here's a quote, because it'll say it better than I can. When Paul says that no one was at his side, but that all had abandoned him, he does not refer to witnesses, but to assistants, such as the Roman courts allowed. These appeared in the capacity of patroni et amici of the accused, to stand by him in trial, to lend their prestige before the court. These had to be men of importance and influence, whose word and whose action in favor of the defendant would have weight with the court to incline the judge either toward acquittal or towards mitigation of the severity of the sentence. Um, So he's not necessarily talking about the abandonment of his friends around him, but he's saying there was no men of prestige or influence. There was none of these men to stand by my side at trial. I stood there by myself um, in this place. Um, and so he's saying, may it not be charged against them. But even though it seemed like he was by himself, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message by, might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And so then the Lord was Paul's Patronus, and stood by him. And it's kind of clear here at the end of 17, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, that he kind of felt at the end of that trial he was probably going to get executed. He probably thought it was all over. But he says, because of God, he delivered me from that, from the lion's mouth. And so this is something that has taken place. And then in verse 18, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so not only does he see the deliverance that God has brought in his life, he also looks forward to the coming deliverance that he's going to experience. I mean, it shows this complete trust that God's 
going to do what God said he's going to do. He's done right by me thus far, even in my suffering, and he's going to continue to do that even into the future. Um, But it's this beautiful picture of even though he was physically standing alone there in that court, that he wasn't alone because he knew that God was standing there with him and that God delivered him up from death in that moment and even then gives him the opportunity to write this letter to Timothy to give him these final instructions. Does anyone have any comments on that section? All right, there you go. Well, it, all, almost all, it also implies there that at trial, it is defense, that the message was fully proclaimed and the Gentiles heard it. So yeah. I think he was, he was preaching right there. Yeah, he was, he was bringing the word right there in the Roman courts. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing to be facing your death and to say, I, I know that I might die here, but what needs to be heard is the gospel. That's what I was put here to do. And what a platform to have to be in Rome, to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen and be able to stand there and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Wow. God works in mysterious ways. If the parchments were the Septuagint, what standing did they have in a Roman court? That's a great question. I don't know what standing they would have had in a Roman court. Um, I think that more, I think more that what Paul would have been going for, if we, if we were to say, because we don't know what they were, we just think that maybe they were. I think what he was trying to establish was, I am teaching from a religious text that you guys are okay with. You guys have not persecuted the, the Israelites or the Jews at this point in time. You've allowed them to continue on teaching from these very books. Uh, and especially when we look back to chapter 3, and we, we realize that when Paul says all Scripture there, he's likely talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and so it would, it, would stand to, it would stand to reason that when he brings that to them, it's to say, these are the things I'm saying. You hear what I'm saying? It's coming from this right here. And so he's probably... If we take those to be the Septuagint, using that to build his case to say, I am, I am teaching from this, not from something that's illicit in the Roman Empire, is likely what we're looking at there. Um, and the idea of the, the, idea of the um, Septuagint, that's just, we, like I said, there's scholarly research that points to that, but we don't know that. So I can't look behind the cross and tell you what's there. All I can say is, maybe it was. Um, Anybody else? All right. I'm going to come around behind you here. There you are. Well, this expression uh, that he's rescued from the lion's mouth is kind of interesting. And I I think about some of those movies in the first century in the Colosseum where the lions are set on the Christians. I'm not sure that's what he's talking about here, but uh, it's an interesting expression. It really is. I I mean, yeah, you, you can... You can think to the, the Colosseum, you can think to Daniel and the lion's den even. Um, all I know is I don't want to meet a hungry lion. Anybody else? No? All right. We're going to move right here into the last couple of verses. So it's final greetings. Greet uh, Prisca, Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. 
Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Again, winter's coming. Please bring me my cloak. I want to be warm. Um, Roman prisons weren't comfortable places. If you've ever seen any pictures uh, of, like, the Mamertine prison, it's kind of like a giant hole in the ground, rock hole in the ground, and the only way you're getting care is if someone is caring for you because the Romans aren't doing it. Um, so he's, winter, winter is near. Remember that cloak I just talked about? Please bring that quickly. Um, uh, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you beautiful way to close out this this letter. It's it's very personal, telling him, hey, these are are people that I know. Send them greetings. Um, And then telling him about these other, these people that he would have known on this beautiful little picture of the the humanity of Paul and Timothy, that that though we look at them and we we look at them as these these heroes of the faith, or however you want to title it, these, these men that were serving God in this time that like they were actually people too and they were this was these were human relationships that they had um, there in that early church Uh, but most importantly as Paul closes out his closing words are the Lord be with your spirit may God be with you and grace be upon you God's grace be upon you Um, how cool would it be if like when we said goodbye to each other it wasn't goodbye it was the Lord be with your spirit, the grace of God be upon you. Um, because there's never, as believers, there's never truly a goodbye, it's only see you later. Even at death, when death closes our eyes, that's a see you later. Because those who have died in Christ will be physically raised on that last day. I don't know. Just a thought. I don't know what it's going to look like, All I know is it's going to be joy that so surpasses this present age that we can't even imagine it. Um, But we know because of that that death has lost its sting in Christ Jesus. And so death is no longer goodbye, but see you later. Any final thoughts on the book of 2 Timothy before we close it out? All right, you guys. I just want to thank you for being here. Second Timothy has been uh, a joy to go through with you, and Pastor Smith will be back, and he's going to be diving into the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so there's so much in there. So I'm really excited for you guys to be diving into that next. Um, and so blessings on your week. I'll close this with a brief prayer and, and send you on your way. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank and praise you uh, that, that you've given us your word, especially uh, that, you, that you rescued Paul so that this letter could be written before you called him into your presence. Lord, I ask that, that as we go from here today, that we would be reminded to fix our eyes firmly on you, to look to the cross, to not try to look behind it, to not try to see the invisible things of God that you have not revealed to us. But instead, to know that looking to the cross of Christ, to know Jesus is enough. And because of that, Lord, lead us to step out in faith, with a smile on our face, joyfully sharing your your word with all those we encounter. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.